You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Good evening. We invite you to be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we will be starting our study in just a few moments. Certainly are appreciative of those who have come out and embraced the the coolness of the evening, the wet that we have out there that we haven't seen in quite a while, at least like we have today. That that stuff falling from the sky, it's that's some nice stuff to see. And so we are certainly thankful to the Lord for his abundant blessings and the rain that we have received and appreciate so much your willingness to come out and to be a part of our study and our worship to our God and Father in heaven and Jesus his son. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, as he is writing to Timothy, he says in verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith is the Apostle Paul could speak very well about the importance of conscience. We'll look at a few passages in a few moments. He wants Timothy to develop this pure heart and this good conscience. As we are in the series of lessons that we have this weekend, we're trying to think about pursuing the life that God wants for us. And part of that is keeping a good conscience, making sure that our conscience is pure. As the Apostle Paul stood trial before Felix, Paul stated that he had maintained and kept a good conscience, a clean conscience. At least in his view, in Acts 24 and verse 16, he said to Felix, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. And we need to seek to keep this good conscience before the Lord, before our Creator, as well as before other people. And Paul says, that's what my goal has been. That I have sought to always maintain a good and clean conscience. In First Timothy, as we looked at verse 5, where Paul says to Timothy, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He goes on in that same chapter in verse 19, where he says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Some people don't care about maintaining a clean and good conscience, that some people's conscience can become distorted. And that certainly is something that we need to be cautious of and we need to be wary of, that we need to realize that our conscience could become corrupted. That we might shipwreck our faith because of an evil conscience. In Paul's letter to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, In Titus chapter 1 and in verse 15, Paul says to Titus, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. There is a problem that Paul perceives. If our conscience becomes defiled, it can lead to the abandonment and shipwreck of our faith. And he wants us to be sure that we are seeking to live our life with a pure, clean, and undefiled conscience that is holy before God. Now we need to make this is very clear from the outset of our study, especially as you consider the Apostle Paul's life, as he said that he has always tried to keep a blameless and pure conscience before God and before men, our conscience may lead us to do some things that are wrong. We might be sincerely wrong, but we can be wrong. The Apostle Paul is an excellent example of that as he was persecuting Christians, as he was trying to throw Christians, believers, into prison. As he was there at the stoning of Stephen and overseeing that 
he says that he was still doing that with a good conscience. And you might wonder, how is that so? How couldn't he be so deceived? And we're going to talk some more about our conscience and how it can become deceived and how it can become hardened. But we have to realize that our conscience is not authoritative in matters of religion and how we live. Our conscience can be wrong. But what I want us to see as a result of our study tonight is that our conscience can be a very valuable tool. That our conscience can be something that helps gauge our standing before God and before men. And it can help us determine that we are on the right path. Or it can send us warnings that we are on the wrong path. And so just because our conscience is not authoritative, it doesn't mean that it is useless. But what we mean tonight, as Paul uses this word conscience, the word conscience is defined as co-knowledge with oneself. If I were to ask you to define what the word conscience is, you might think of Pinocchio, you might think of Jiminy Cricket or something like that. And he's right there telling you what to do and trying to lead you uh, to make good decisions. And it is that kind of idea in some ways, in a very playful way. It is that voice inside of your head, isn't it? That helps you process your thoughts and your emotions, the feelings and your actions. It's that process that you undergo that helps you evaluate and determine whether you ought to say this or whether you ought to keep your mouth shut. Sometimes my conscience doesn't work as quickly as it needs to. Sometimes our conscience is that which is something is supposed to be helping us perceive a right action and what should I do in a situation. And it's interesting to see as in 1 Timothy chapter 1, As Paul's writing to Timothy, notice in verse 5 what Paul says. He says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He puts those three things together, doesn't he? Heart, conscience, and faith. Notice what the Apostle Paul does in the book of Romans in Romans chapter 2. He does something very similar here in Romans the second chapter. And in verse 15, in Romans chapter 2 and in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes there, he says, "...in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them." He says that the law was written in their hearts, Their conscience bearing witness. We see that connection between the heart and the conscience. And their thoughts. If you want to understand what the conscience is, that's what it is. We're talking about our heart. Not that muscle that is inside our chest cavity, of course. But the mind, the seat of our emotions, the seat of our intellectual processing that goes on within us. That's what the Apostle Paul is describing, where the conscience is paralleled with our heart, our mind, and our thoughts. On some more technical definitions of what the conscience is, uh, Bill Mount says that in the New Testament, the conscience is that part of the mind that performs moral judgments and ethical evaluations. It refers to one's moral sensibilities. Thus, it can refer to one's ethical reflection regarding one's own actions, much in line with the modern English usage, as well as one's ethical reflection regarding the actions of others, something foreign to common English usage. And he's saying we just don't use it in that sense. But I think what he's trying to convey is that as my conscience, I need to be understanding I need to be sympathetic with what you think in your conscience and that there needs to be reciprocation in our conscience and that we need to develop that kind of idea in Art and Gingrich they define the idea of conscience as an awareness of information about something it's consciousness 
In their second definition, they say, the inward faculty of distinguishing right and wrong. Moral consciousness. That's what conscience is. And that's what we are seeking to understand tonight. We want to think about that moral obligation of what our conscience is and how we should keep a good and pure conscience. That's easier said than done. But I want us to think about the conscience this evening first as a witness. That the conscience is something that can be a witness for us or against us. Turn to Romans chapter 2. In Romans, the second chapter, we already looked at verse 15, but that is taking place in a context here where Paul says, beginning at verse 14, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, as he's talking about Jew-Gentile relationships and how they can both be justified, he says in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do do instinctively the things of the law, These not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul says there in the middle of that, in verse 15, that the conscience can... Bear witness. If you're anything like me, or particularly my wife, and she likes watching a lot of law and order. She likes every crime show that there is out there. She finds all of them. And so you get a lot of crime shows, and at the end of law and order, you know, you have the courtroom scene, don't you? And you have witnesses that take the witness stand, and they offer a testimony. That's what our conscience does. It offers a testimony. It testifies about how we are living. It testifies what we do. We cannot lie to our conscience, can we? We can try to deceive ourselves. We can try to lie to others. We can try to deceive others. But we cannot, at the end of the day, really get away with lying to our conscience. The conscience can be a defense. You know, in a courtroom scene, you have the defendant, and they might call their own witnesses in order to try to prop up the defendant. But then you have the prosecution, right? And they want to cross-examine that witness, and they might want to bring their own set of witnesses to build their case so that they can then say, this person is guilty. That is what our conscience is. It can be a very neutral kind of conscience, but it can be used in a sense where it will either defend us or it will accuse us of guilt. And the Apostle Paul, as he was speaking in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 23, in Acts chapter 23, as he was before the Sanhedrin council, He said to the council in verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. That was including killing Christians. And that certainly was not according to God's plan. That certainly would have been sinful. And yet Paul had built a conscience that would have allowed space for that to be okay. And that's the danger of our conscience, isn't it? That we can build this headspace, right? Where we say, well, that's not sin. That's not wrong. We may do that for ourselves. We may do that for our family members where we say, well, what they did, that's not wrong in this case. We can be just like Paul. And Paul, he had developed this sense where he wanted to maintain a good conscience. In second, in second Corinthians chapter one, in second Corinthians, the first chapter, 
And in verse 12, after Paul has become a Christian, after he has been serving as an apostle and a preacher and minister, as he has been planting and beginning churches in new places, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as he is defending himself throughout 2 Corinthians, he's defending his apostleship. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. What Paul says is that our confidence is in this, that our conscience bears a good testimony. That it makes a good defense for our intention and for our actions. And that you can see that. The conscience is a witness. And it can either be a witness for your life, for how you are living your life, or it can be something that proves your guilt. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, in Romans chapter 2 and in verse 15, as he uses those three terms on alternating between heart and conscience and thoughts. He says that our conscience bears witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Our thoughts, the innermost part of a person, our thoughts, they can either defend our actions or else they can bring about an emotional response of guilt. We'll talk some more about guilt in a little bit. But the conscience, it can defend us when we are wrong, when we have sinned, when we have made bad choices in our life. Our conscience, it can be hardened, it can be seared to a point where we don't feel anything. Have you ever wondered why people might go about just doing the same sins all of the time? Why they repeat the same problem over and over? Maybe you wonder that about your own life. Why you keep doing the same thing over and over and you keep making the same mistakes day in and day out or week in and week out? Because we allow our conscience to find a place to defend us. Where we don't feel guilt. And what Paul says in verse 16 is that after he talks about the conscience, he says in verse 16, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And that courtroom kind of scene that we might be able to build in our minds as we think of the conscience as a witness that is taking the witness stand, and it's either going to be a defense for us, or it's going to say, no, you're wrong, and prosecute us. There is going to be a judge that we stand before, the God and the Creator of the universe. He's going to judge us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to be certain that we are living in accordance with the law of the Spirit, as Paul would talk about, that we need to maintain our conscience knowing what is right and what is wrong. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, as Paul has said that we are going to be judged according to the Gospel, in Romans 8 and verse 2, we noted this verse last night where Paul says, for the law of the Spirit of life. Notice that the Gospel and the... The revelation from the Spirit is called the law. You know, if someone violates the law and they are standing trial and they are before a judge and before a jury, they have violated a law. And they will be judged by the law. And we will be judged by the law of the Spirit, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And when our conscience is wounded and convicted of sin, it testifies against us. 
We are supposed to feel guilty. I'm convinced of that. That we should feel a degree of guilt when we sin. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts the second chapter on that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, a verse I'm sure many of you are very familiar with, in Acts 2 and verse 37, after Peter has really come to the conclusion of his sermon, it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They were pricked in their heart. They were pierced. That idea of pierced, Arne and Gingrich, they define that to be pierced, that is stabbed in a figurative sense, of the feeling of a sharp pain connected with anxiety and remorse. Is that how we feel after we sin? When we might turn to sinful behavior, whenever we might offend a brother because of our angry words that we have used against them, whenever we take a sip of alcohol that leads us to drunkenness, when we watch things on TV or on the internet that we ought not to see, are we feeling that kind of guilt? Where we feel as if we have been stabbed. The pain and the anguish, the anxiety and the remorse. In the Psalms, you can see that kind of language pop up so many times. In Psalm 73, in Psalm 73, you have the words of Asaph. And he says in verse 21, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. We don't like that feeling of guilt and the remorse and the anxiety and being pierced. It's not a fun thing to do whenever we might have a, an operation or a surgery, then we're thankful that they give us really good medicine that puts us out, don't, aren't we? Last year I had to have my gallbladder removed and I went in for my post-op appointment and, and my doctor said, well, now you know what it feels like to be stabbed. <laughs> like, well, I didn't feel anything uh, because I was out and I was thankful for that. We, we want to try to dull the senses, don't we, as much as we can, especially those that might bring pain or anguish and upset us. And that's exactly what our society has tried to do. Ann Landers, in her own encyclopedia, she said one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh, or clay feet. You did wrong and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. But be assured the agony you feel is normal. Remember guilt is a pollutant and we don't need any more of it in the world. That's what society wants. You pick up any self-help book and and self-improvement, and they're going to say you need to get rid of that feeling of guilt. I think guilt has a right and proper place in our life. If we have a conscience that is sensitive, that would be a witness, that would not defend us when we're wrong, but that would point that we are wrong. And show us that we are wrong. Guilt is the pain that our conscience is supposed to feel when we sin. Now, some people, they have an, a very sensitive conscience. And just because someone may feel guilt doesn't mean that they have sinned necessarily. I've known good people that they would have thought if I sat down at the dinner table with a hat on that I had sinned or something like that. And I don't think that is something that would be sinful or condemn me in the sight of God. 
But and and someone might feel guilty for doing something like that. As R.C. Sproul said, the presence of guilt feelings does not automatically indicate the presence of objective guilt with respect to a particular action, but it may represent the presence of the guilt of acting against one's conscience. The bottom line is that any time we experience feelings of guilt, we need to step back and ask ourselves as honestly as we possibly can, have I broken the law of God? If we feel guilt, don't run from it. Evaluate yourself in light of the guilt. Because that's what the conscience is supposed to do. And as we have been thinking about, conscience really serves as a warning system. And first, we have to be able to know what is right. We have to be able to know what is wrong. We have to be able to distinguish and determine and use discernment in our actions. The conscience is supposed to feel the pain, the anguish, and guilt that is associated with sin. And if we don't spend time in God's Word, then we may remain ignorant about certain things. And so we need to be sure that we are looking within the Scriptures and that we have developed a conscience that is in line and harmony with what God has said. That's why we need to preach and we need to teach things that might help us fully develop our conscience. We can't afford to quit preaching against sin. We have to be able to identify what is wrong. We need to be able to do that so our conscience can develop and grow and come to an understanding. Because if we quit talking about sin from the pulpit or in our Bible classes, if we try to remain where we don't offend anyone, then we are endangering ourselves. Because Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he tells Timothy, to preach the word, verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all with great patience and instruction. Sorry to quote from another translation. It says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. We have to remain vigilant in preaching and defending the truth. And we cannot afford to become desensitized to sin. That's something that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul des- describes those who might go away into apostasy. In, 2 Timothy, or in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Our conscience can be seared over. It can be hardened where we just have become so desensitized to sins. Have you ever just turned on the TV and maybe you started watching a movie and you start hearing some words and then you don't really pay attention, but then all of a sudden a child comes into the room and you're thinking, oh, wow, I didn't even realize the language was this bad. Have you ever been in that situation? Sometimes we become desensitized to our surroundings and the sinful world that we're in. Maybe it's at workplace when we hear people spreading jokes or talking about things that just ought not to be talked about. That ought to make us blush. And we just ignore it. We think, oh, that's normal. That's not normal. Maybe normal for them, but for you as a child of God, You cannot afford to become desensitized to it. Because if we remain desensitized, 
I'm convinced given enough time that we will be down the road where it will lead to indifference and indifference will lead to acceptance. We need to consider the example of Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh in the book of Exodus? In Exodus chapter 7, as God had sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, it says in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Later on in verse 13, he says, Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. I think sometimes we forget that it's not that Pharaoh didn't have a heart. (laughs) It wasn't that he didn't have a conscience. It's that his heart was hardened. His conscience was hardened. He refused to listen. How many times do we act like that? A couple chapters later in Exodus 9, in Exodus 9 and verse 27, it says, Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Sounds like really good words, doesn't it? Until you get to verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Sometimes in the hardness of our heart, and the hardening of our conscience, we might say the right things. We might go through the right actions. But we have no intention of ever keeping them actually living in a right way. That ought to scare each and every one of us about how deceived and hardened that conscience might become. And he contrasts Pharaoh with the sensitivity that comes with David. I use the word sensitivity, and that's something that sometimes we don't want to be described as sensitive, right? (laughs) Especially men, we don't want to be described as sensitive. But if there was ever a man in Scripture that kind of lives up to the man's man kind of image, I think it's David has to be in consideration. He was a warrior. He was a king. He was good looking. He was someone who had a lot of power. And yet, as he was being chased by Saul, he was on the run and Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. And... David is hiding out in that cave and Saul does not know it. And what you'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 24 that David, he cuts just a little bit of Saul's robe and he wants him to just, he's playing a little bit of a trick there with him, a mind game like, that could have been your throat, buddy. (laughs) That I was that close to killing you. And you wouldn't have had any idea. But then you notice what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 5. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. He didn't do anything sinful there, did he? But his conscience was so sensitive that it bothered him. I would suggest that our conscience, we need to have that kind of a sensitive conscience. And we need to be sensitive enough to know that we have sinned. And when we have sinned, we need to be sensitive to that. We need to realize that I need to make correction in my life. We do need to be careful of having an overly sensitive conscience. John MacArthur, he is a Calvinist. 
And he has a really good book that's called The Vanishing Conscience where he talks about the importance of conscience and how it's just vanished basically from society and how we don't want to have talk about having guilt or having a you know a guilty conscience those kinds of things. But then he goes back to his calvinistic roots and he says, yeah, you really can't help but sin because you're totally depraved and you have this sinful nature that you're just born with. I don't know how that brings any kind of comfort to anybody um, about the guilt there. And sometimes we certainly can have an overly sensitive conscience because of certain scruples that we were raised with. But if I had my choice between having an overly sensitive conscience or a conscience that was hardened like Pharaoh's, I think I would err on the side of Sensitivity. I want to be sure that I walk with Christ and that I don't offend someone through my words or my actions. That I don't transgress and violate the law of God. I want to have a conscience that would tell me when I have sinned. Now some people, they have that overly sensitive conscience and they go around every single day thinking that I have no confidence, I have no hope, I just sin all the time. I think what John says in 1 John chapter 3 ought to provide some comfort. In 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 19, he says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And if we have an overly sensitive conscience, pray about it. Ask for God's assurance. Through prayer and accountability, we can find the hope and assurance because of God and His Word. We need to be sure that our conscience is attuned very closely and very closely aligned with what God has said and has revealed in Scripture because the conscience is supposed to warn us. The conscience is this warning system that God has given us that we can realize that I have sinned, I have erred, and I have transgressed God's law. And you think about the conscience and how we always, it needs to always be engaged. We can never... Take our foot off the pedal when it comes to the conscience. That we have to have that conscience always engaged. You know, sometimes we may have an alarm system at our house, and when you leave your house, you leave it, you turn it on, right? But when you're at home, you probably turn it off at least for part of the time because you realize I'm home. Conscience it needs to be on all the time. Because we live in a very wicked and evil world where there is sin all of the time. Our friends are engaged in sin and they think differently of us. I love the description that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, notice what Peter does here. In 1 Peter the fourth chapter, Peter, he tells us, that as he's describing the kind of lifestyle that a child of God ought to live, he says in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. Peter says you need to live right. Based upon Christ and because of His sacrifice, You need to live right. You need to cease from sin. Not just sin a little less than you did last week. He says you need to stop it. But he says everyone else is going to keep doing what they always do. 
They're going to think differently of you. They're going to malign you. They're going to talk bad about you. That's the kind of world that we're living in. That's the kind of society that is around us. As Peter and the Apostle Paul describe the generation that of their day, and I think it would apply for us too, it's a crooked and perverse generation. We live in a wicked, evil world and our conscience needs to be alarmed all the time. But how many times do we maybe turn that alarm system off when we're around friends? Maybe when we're at work. Maybe when we're around family members. How many times do we ignore our conscience for the sake of preserving friendships and family relationships? We need to have a conscience that serves as a warning system. We cannot ignore wickedness and evil and sin. There is good news. And if our conscience is broken and pierced or stabbed, as we use that kind of language tonight, there's good news. Because our conscience can be made whole. Even though our conscience might have been violated and shredded if we sin and refuse to repent, a guilty conscience can be made pure and whole again. If you're a child of God tonight, and you've come to realize that you're Conscience is in violation of the will of God. Confess and forsake sin. Psalm 32. The words of David are extremely powerful here. In Psalm 32, and begin reading with me in verse 1. Where he says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He says, when I kept silent, it ate me up from the inside. (laughs) But when I confessed... One thing I think we need to try to understand about confession. I think it's a shame that we view confession as this shameful act that, oh, I, oh, I can never confess or I can never tell someone that I have sinned. We think of making a public confession as kind of taking a walk of shame. I think we need to reorient our thinking on public confession. Because what David says is that when I confessed, that's when I was healed. When I was silent, he says, I, it was just eating me up from the inside. But when I confessed my transgressions to the Lord, you forgave the guilt of my sin. We need to ask for forgiveness. When we have sinned, we need to humble ourselves and confess that sin. We need to forsake that sin. And we need to ask for forgiveness. Jesus tries to convey this principle very clearly in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 23, Jesus 
He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. I think if we were to use that in a more modern sense, he would say, if you come to church and you realize that your brother has something against you, not something that you have against your brother, notice that, but if you, if your brother has something against you, you leave the church building and you go fix that. You go fix that and repair that relationship. Be reconciled to your brother. If they have something against you, you go fix it. Jesus, He reiterates that principle in chapter 6 and verse 14. In chapter 6 and verse 14, He says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If someone comes to us and they say, look, I want to repair the damage and the sin that I have caused here, that I have done, you need to be willing to forgive. You need to then make restitution. Love the example in the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, we sometimes just think of the story of Zacchaeus as a children's song that he was just this wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree. But there's so much more to the story of Zacchaeus. In Zacchaeus, or in Luke, Zacchaeus, he doesn't get his own book in the Bible. Sorry about that. Maybe you should. But in Luke chapter 19, in Luke chapter 19, as Jesus has told Zacchaeus that I'm going to go to your house today, he says, as in this conversation, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord in verse 8, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. This tax collector who was in the business of, of perhaps skimming off the top and taking for himself, I don't take this as a, a confession of sin necessarily, but I think what he's saying is a principle that if I have done it, I will give back four times as much. That I will go above and beyond and make things right as much as I can. That's making restitution. And we cannot afford to procrastinate in this area. Because if our conscience is defiled, we need to seek to be pure. That's the principle that Paul's trying to convey in Titus chapter 1. That if we have defiled ourselves, we need to hurry and we need to act. That if we are guilty, we are not clean, we are not pure, and we stand condemned. And then we need to be in the business of educating our conscience. We need to teach ourselves about what is right. We need to teach ourselves and train our conscience in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, and in verse 7, as Paul is talking about our liberty and those things that someone might eat, they might eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And they just associated this activity with something that they used to do, and now they realize that that activity was wrong, like idolatry. He says now they perceive eating that meat that had been sacrificed to an idol just by association of those things, it defiles their conscience. Now Paul's saying eating meat is fine, but some people, because of an association with something, 
their conscience has been defiled. And he's not saying ignore it and just remain ignorant. He's saying we need to continue to grow and have knowledge. In Romans chapter 14, a very similar kind of context, it is a slightly different, but a very similar sort of situation where Paul says at the end of that chapter, in Romans chapter 14 and verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. And our faith needs to grow and we need to educate ourselves about what is right and what is wrong. That's what we need to be seeking to do if we are a child of God and our conscience is offended if we have sinned. And if we have sin in our life that we are ignoring and we're trying to harden ourselves and harden that conscience like with that branding iron. We're just hardened and it can't be touched like Pharaoh who might say the right thing but then do something wrong with no intent of ever doing what's right. If we are a Christian, we can't afford to act like that. But if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, your conscience may be in the same kind of state where it's feeling all sorts of guilt. Because you've come to realize that you're in sin. That you are not in a right relationship with God. And the Apostle Peter helps us realize that through Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness and your conscience can be made whole and pure. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Conscience can be pure. can be made whole. And you can have a good conscience once again. Tonight, if your conscience is bothering you and you realize that you are not in a right relationship with God or that you need to make some changes in your life, we want to encourage you to take the time tonight before it's eternally too late to fix those things. Confess your sins. Forsake sin. Stop engaging in it. Make restitution. Reconcile yourself to those that you've offended, those whom you have wronged. And if you've never named the name of Christ and have never been baptized, there's good news, there's salvation, and your conscience can be made whole tonight. We'd have no greater pleasure or joy than to help you have a pure conscience. If we can help you in some way tonight, would you come now as we stand and as we sing? Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.